We're gonna get ready to read and honor God's word. My name is John, one of the pastors here, and we are in the midst of a brand new series called Living on Purpose. Everybody say purpose. Purpose, we're sort of dialoguing on this subject that we are all created by divine design and answering the question, what if instead of meandering or or, or sort of uh, floating our way through life, searching, what if we could discover and live on purpose? Last week, Eddie, a friend of mine who runs Church United down here, took us through John chapter four, the woman at the well, talking about how when someone meets Jesus, this is the God that sees you, this is the God that pursues you, and for any who are willing, he is the God that sets you free and liberates you from shame and reveals destiny. If that sounds good to you and you missed that, I encourage you to check it out on our YouTube channel or podcast search, Greenhouse South Florida, and you can find it there. This week, I wanna continue on this idea of purpose, looking specifically at our CEO and rabbi. His name is? Always the right answer in church, right? His name is Jesus to see what exactly he has to say regarding purpose. So if you flip in your Bibles to Matthew chapter nine, Matthew chapter nine, Dolphins fans, we got to see Tua in a few series yesterday. How we feeling? Uh, yeah, I'm feeling a little, uh, I'm like, I was hoping for at least one deep shot. We didn't see it. There was no Tyreek Hill, no Jalen Waddle. If you're like, who are we talking about right now? God's favorite sport, okay? It's called football. That's not the point. The Bible's the point. If you're ready, say, preach, preacher. I will. We'll start in verse 35. Now, Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had what? Compassion. This is going to be key. We'll come back to this at different points throughout our time together this morning. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Now he called the 12 disciples and he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits, to heal every disease and hear the names of the 12 and it's Simon and Peter and Andrew and James and Philip and Bartholomew and Thomas and James and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who did not turn out too well. And these 12 disciples Jesus sent out and here were his instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or any town of the Samaritans. Go first, rather, to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. By the way, I need you to hear this message this morning. The kingdom of heaven is near. What does that mean? It means that what Jesus told us to pray is not just spiritual smack talk. It's available. His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, this means sicknesses healed and the tormented set free and the hopeless find hope and the oppressed find joy. And we're praying that would happen this very morning. Jesus said, heal the sick, verse eight, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons freely. You have received freely give. Would you join me as we pray all over the room online and over there in Guyana, Jesus help, amen. Turn to your neighbor, give him a high five, a fist bump, an elbow bump, a hug, a kiss on the lips if you're married to him. Have you ever met someone truly and deeply filled with compassion? 
You sitting next to someone, maybe truly and deeply, I mean, they're just that person. Empathy is not a chore. Empathy is who they are. Like they, they just, they empathize. Anybody know my, my wife, Nancy and I, we have a child like that. Her name is Lucia. Lucia is our youngest. She's three years old. And from as old as we can remember, from the, the moment before even her first words, this girl, Lucy, we call her, was full of compassion. It is a regular occurrence in the Lash household. You'll just be going about your day. You'll be doing your thing. I feel like often it happens when I'm doing dishes and maybe she intuitively senses what I feel about the dishes, which is just a little taste of hell on earth, an exercise in futility. But that's not the point. But she'll come over and she'll say, Dada, are you okay, Dada? I'm like, oh, you know, and at first, oh, that's so sweet. And, but, but she asks enough times, and you're like, am I okay? You know, you start getting like this existential crisis. You're like, I, I don't know. And then, I don't know. If I'm, Lucy, and you start wanting like, where's the couch? Let me lay down and have my child be like a therapist for me. Like, I don't know if I'm okay, you know? And is that just me when you have parents, young kids? Yeah. And, uh, but she'll just always be checking in. You know, Nancy a couple weeks ago wasn't feeling well. And so I'm in there with her and Lucy walks into the room and she says, dad, we have to pray for mama. So, oh, she, so she gets up on the bed. She lays her little hands on her. Jesus, help mama feel better. And thank you, God. Amen. I'm like, I mean, I, I was, I'm the pastor, Lucy. So I was clearly going to do that. But I'm trying to make disciples and delegate. It's good leadership, right? She'll walk up, you know, I'm, I'm eating something, and, and, and I've got a little bit of experience here with kids. This is our second go-around. Our, our youngest son, Liam, if he fixed on something you were eating, there was only one reason for the fixation. He wanted it, right? And so Lucy walks up, and she starts looking at you eating, and I'm like, you know, I started, not me, but my wife. She would, like, kind of hide it and, and try to, like, not let my, that <laughs> yeah, was totally me. And, uh, and, and, but Lucy's just different. Lucy walks up, and she says, is that good, Dada? Do you like that? You enjoy, I mean, this, this girl is just full of compassion. Wouldn't it be incredible to have a world full of Lucy's? Wouldn't that be nice? Like, can you imagine if we were all a little bit more like Lucia? Like, if we were all a little bit more compassionate, a little bit more empathetic, a little bit more full of care and concern and deep, genuine compassion for others? But we're not. <laughs> I think we get there in some ways, and, and as I kind of approach this text, I think in some ways as a culture here, we, we find ourselves in spots of compassion. Well, when it comes to things like justice or injustice on an earthbound level, we respond in ways of compassion when it comes to tragedies like school shootings or, or natural disasters. It's, it's pretty unanimous. The human population rallies together to say this isn't right. And we, you know, whether it's you're the, you're the thoughts and, and, and good, good vibes camp or you're Jesus people. And so you're like, we're praying and we're with you. And we're saying, whatever the case might be, we rally together around these things. But I'm concerned because when it comes to eternal matters, matters of the soul, matters of eternity, we seem to lack the same sense of compassion and urgency. What do I mean? For a long time, Christians have been criticized, and to be fair, often rightly so, as being so heavenly-minded that they were no earthly good. And to be clear, the Bible compels us to, to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. James says pure and undefiled religion is to care for widows and orphans. We're called biblically because of heaven to make an impact on earth. Amen? However, and with that being the case, I fear that especially 
as the people of God and certainly as a general culture, we have overcorrected this reality. And what I mean by that is in our rightful critique of dead theoretical evangelicism, we have lost our call to the evangel good news of the gospel. There are certain things right now in our culture that are very in vogue. No one's gonna get mad at you because you gave an outpouring of compassion at the risk, at the reality of a school shooting or a natural disaster. But if you lean into compassion for someone's soul or for their spiritual well-being, you might get a how dare you. And the how dare you would be appropriate if it was you who decided that, but it's not you who decided that, it's Jesus. Feeding the hungry and, and caring for the poor and all of these things are biblically called for, necessary, imperative. We must be concerned with matters on earth, but we can't only be concerned with matters on earth because if Jesus is telling the truth, and by the way, he always tells the truth, justice on earth without Jesus for the soul is only partial liberation. We see this a little bit when it comes to mental health struggles. Our, our battles are not principally and solely physical and corporeal in nature. We wrestle against powers and principalities and spiritual forces. There's so much more going on than simply what we see on the surface. And there's a problem because as followers of Jesus, well, let me just level with us and talk to us for a moment. I, you, we seem to have a compassion deficit where Jesus was abundantly full of compassion, namely for people's souls, for people's connection with God, for people's eternity. Now, I get it. Culturally, this is not popular, right? Culturally, and, and I would, and we would love to believe that man, every, every path is going to get you to basically the same place, and, and all roads lead to God, and, and everything's going to get you there. The problem is that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. You're like, well, Jesus was just full of love, exactly, and because he was full, so full of love, he spoke about hell, eternal separation from God a lot because he didn't want anybody to go there. And it feels like, to some degree, we might be stepping on a sociological and cultural landmine. How dare I say what might send someone to a good or bad place? Exactly, you're not saying it. But Jesus did. And as disciples and as followers of Jesus, our call and our desire and our longing is to be more like Jesus, to have his heart, we want his heart. We care for people's physical state. We care for people's emotional state. We care for people's physiological state. And we have to care for people's eternal spiritual state as well. I mean, if we only just think about simple math and the duration of things, you've got a little segment, a snippet, a vapor, James calls it, versus an eternity. And there's a call to compassion for both. Why? Because lostness bothers God. Turn your neighbor and just say, it does. Lostness bothers God. The, the huge propensity and, and status of our culture stuck in anxiety, tormented in the mind, desperately hoping for hope spiritually. Lostness bothers God. 
and we want it to bother us. So I want to look at what Jesus had to say and what he did as we endeavor to get his heart and follow his way more closely. At the end of his time on earth, there's something called the Great Commission. This was Jesus' parting words to his disciples, and it's recorded all throughout the Gospels and into the book of Acts. I want us to look at it in all of these different iterations because Jesus clearly communicated his expectation for disciples back then and for disciples right now. This is Matthew 28. You might have this one memorized already, also spiritual. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, therefore go and do what? Make disciples. That's why we exist here at Greenhouse. We want to help ordinary people become passionate followers of Jesus. Or to put it succinctly, we exist to be and make disciples. He says, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Mark records this same interchange in his own words with Jesus and the disciples right before he went back to be with the Father. It says, Jesus said to them, go into all world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they'll drive out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. They'll pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place hands on sick people and they will get well. In Luke, it says it like this. Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said, this is what was written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. And finally, Luke picks up this same interchange in Acts. In Acts chapter 1, it says, Then they gathered around him, being Jesus, and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus said, It is not for you to know the days or the times. The Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power. Remember a few weeks ago we talked about poder, power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my what? Witnesses. There it is again. In all Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This clear parting command from Jesus to his disciples should frame for us as we dialogue about purpose what our collective purpose is. Namely, and if you're taking notes, I encourage you to jot this down. Our primary purpose is to love God and to be his witnesses. There's all sorts of tributaries that run out from there, but our fundamental and primary purpose as humans and certainly as followers of Jesus is to love God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love God and to be his witnesses. And as we discuss purpose, I fear that we often run into a needless and unnecessary wall because part of us will never come fully alive until we're being who we've been called and created to be and doing what we've been created to do. And we are witnesses called and created to witness. Turn to your neighbor and say, can I get a witness? Can I get, we are called, created to witness. Now, that's what Jesus told his disciples to do. But how exactly are they supposed to do it? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Ever watch someone try to do the right thing in the wrong way? You ever been in that spot before? I have a pet peeve. Um, actually, if you've heard me preach, I have uh, several pet peeves, uh, one of which is rubbernecking on the road. Please don't do that. If there's an accident, pray for them. Don't look at them. All right, keep driving. Traffic jams. 
The second one is, what is my second one? I don't even know what's in my notes. There's a few there. No, it's not that bad. The second one is I, I, I do not like bad sales experiences and bad salespeople. Can I get an amen from anybody that you've been this? Nancy and I, I I love a good deal. Do I have any good deal people in the room with me? Like, I love, thank you, Lord. It's part of my culture. Um, We're we're discipled in it. I'm from a Jewish background. It's like part of our indoctrination and discipleship growing up. Like, you're going to find a good deal. My mom is laughing because she's the queen of the good deals. But, um... But, and so when Nancy and I went on this vacation a couple of years ago and they were like, hey, listen, you could get like, it was in Orlando at one of these like resort type places. And they're like, hey, if you go to this little pitch thing, you can get three free rounds of golf and like $300 season, whatever, and whatever, whatever. And I'm like, I'm sold. Now my wife, I mean, she is, she's got such a heart. Talk about compassion. Lucy gets it from someone, Nancy. She's got such a heart of compassion. Like if anyone tries to sell my wife anything, she'll buy it. I'm like, Nancy, we have seven of those already. She's like, I know, but they were just so sweet. I'm the opposite. I'm like, man, I'm not going, I'm going to buy nothing from nobody on the first time. I'm going to go home. I'm going to do my research. I'm going to look at it. And so bless this lady's heart. We, we get into this thing and they're like, it's going to be an hour and a half, which is a lie. Just let me save you all some time. It's a lie. It's going to be three hours. And we get there, and this lady's like walking us through, and she, you could tell it was like her, her first week of doing the pitch, and so we're going through, and I, 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 I geek out on like business leadership stuff, and so I've read a bunch of books, and so we're going, and we're touring this little, you know, thing she's trying to sell us, and, and she's like, each time, she's like very clearly could care less about us, and is just going through her script. And so she's like, we told her at the beginning, like, hey, listen, here's our situation. We're not looking to do anything right now. And she did not care. She was just going through a script. And at the end of each moment, she'd be like, you could, could you see yourself in a place like this? And what they're trying to get you to do in sales is if you say yes enough times, then finally you're going to like, well, I already said, it's like a psychological Jedi mind trick. I'm like, so every time, I, this is bad. Every time I was like, maybe. She's like, but could you see yourself doing this? I was like, I don't know. And she was like, and I was like, I see what you're doing, Miss Thang, and I'm not gonna go there with you. And she could care less. It was all at one point, Nancy's like, just stop. I'm like, what? It was awkward. Like she she did not care about who we were as people because she was just trying to get through her script. And my guess is that most of us have experienced someone sharing their faith just like that. They did not care about us as a person. And they did not care about what was plaguing us in the malady of our soul. And they did not have any iota of compassion or genuine concern for us as an individual. They just had to get through their script. And it felt nauseating. So we said, I'm never going to do that. But we're called to be his witnesses. You can actually do the right thing in the wrong way, but you can also do the right thing in the right way. And the wrong way to do the right thing is to not do it. Right? That was a lot of rights and wrongs. Everyone's like, I don't exactly know. Need a nap. We are witnesses called to witness. Jesus said, you've had this incredible experience. Some of us in this room, some of us online, some of us in Guyana have had this incredible experience where Jesus has changed our lives and it's not theoretical and it's not just religious and we don't come here floating. We're human beings and we maybe got in the flesh on the way in traffic, but Jesus changed our lives. And maybe you try to tell someone about it at some point and 
in a moment of passion and naivete, maybe you didn't do it in the best way. Maybe you didn't do it with the best heart motivation. Maybe you just didn't know what the heck you were doing. And it went bad. And you said to yourself, I'm never doing that again. Can I plead with you as your brother, pastor, and friend, your purpose is wrapped up in his purpose, and his purpose for your life is to be a witness. And in all of your searching, and in all of your self-help books, and in all of your counseling, and in all of your therapy, and I love all of that, you will always be lacking in purpose until you tap into your calling as a witness. And you can do the right thing in the right way which is why this passage is key. Jump back in it with me. Verse 35. It said, Jesus went throughout all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The first step, and really the rest of this message is applicational in nature. The first step, if we wanna step into our calling, into this primary purpose, this divine design, the first step in being his witnesses is to get Jesus's heart for people. Jesus was moved with compassion, why? Because he saw that they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. You know what happens to sheep without shepherds? (laughs) Come on, Linda. Stealing some dad jokes. Linda said bad things. I appreciate that one. You know what happens to sheep without shepherds? They die. They die. Sheep are all fluffy and cuddly, and they're like, oh, they're so sweet, and they'll cuddly themselves right off a cliff. They'll cuddly themselves right into a wolf's mouth. Like sheep without shepherds are dead meat. And people without Jesus are dead meat. I know I was. And every single day I still am, if not for his grace. So Jesus was moved not by imperial duty as the king of the sky. Jesus was moved not simply by a divine mandate and a heavenly quota. Jesus was moved by deep love and compassion, moved by compassion. But it wasn't just enough for Jesus to be moved by compassion. He did something with his disciples, and it's very interesting. Look at verse 36 again. He sees the crowds, he has compassion on them because he sees the masses harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, go. He saw the people harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He said, disciples, what are you doing? You gotta get out there. Is that what he did? No. What did he do? He told them the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Therefore, pray. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out harvesters into his harvest field. This is fascinating. Jesus sees the need, 
moved by compassion. He is out there meeting the need, but Jesus knows the master plan, and the master plan is not for a one solo hero. The master plan is to commission disciples to be disciple makers who change the world. And so Jesus, moved by compassion, does not send his disciples out. Instead, he sends them in to the prayer closet to pray. Why? Because it's not just enough to go on the mission. You've got to go with his heart of compassion, and that only comes through prayer. It's very, it's, it's counterintuitive at first glance. It's like, here, we got this big problem at work. Everybody, let's tackle the problem. That's not what he does. He says, first, before you, you're not ready to talk to people about God until you've talked to God about people. Why? Because we're jacked up and our hearts get in weird spots and you don't want to go in acting like a salesperson who doesn't care about the person just trying to get them to say yes. But if you're not careful, you will. But guess who won't, God? So the call for disciples, first and foremost, is to pray. Why? Because it's not just enough to go. We must go with his heart, with a heart of compassion. When you walked in, you got one of these cards. It says VIP prayer. If you got that, can you throw it up in the air and wave it like you just do care? I want you to look at this for a second. Thank you very much. It'll be like a fan for your neighbor. We've got this card. It says VIP prayer. And, and what this is for is for you to be praying for your friends. Now, I wanna hearken back to a message a few weeks ago because if we are not careful, here's what we'll do. We're like, man, I know I, I should be praying for my friends. And so you'll, you'll write down a few names of, of some friends in your life. Ideally, these are friends that are close enough that you could hang out with them, invite them to coffee, invite them to a meal. These are for friends in your life who you love, who you care about, who you who are like, man, Jesus changed my life. It's been the best thing that's ever happened to me. And, and not because I'm any better than my friends. God knows, man, they're, they're more amazing than I am. But because Jesus has been so incredible for me, like a restaurant I stumbled on on Yelp that I want to tell somebody else about, I got to tell them about Jesus because he's the best thing ever. And so we'll say, man, I should, even now, you're like, man, I, I should be praying for my friends. And if we're not careful, here's what we'll do. Lord, bless him. And then you go to work and they're talking about how life has just been so stressful and you're like, man, Jesus, do something. You can do little sprinkles on there. And then, and then you'll, and a couple weeks later and they're talking, you got a, you got a, a classmate in your, in your class. And like, man, I've, I've been struggling in school. You know, we're three weeks into the semester and man, I feel like I'm so trapped in anxiety right now. Survey say Michael, who's our next gen coordinator, shared 40% of college students right now are dealing with some sort of a diagnosed anxiety disorder. So you've got classmates and they're like, man, and you're like, oh my goodness, girl, bless you. And we're doing a little like sprinkling and, and what I'm, I'm not talking about have you prayed for your friends, sprinkle, sprinkle, sprinkle. I'm talking about have you taken your friends and dunked them in prayer? Like you're like, I am gonna bathe these kids every single day, prayers till it's wet on the stage. I'm gonna bathe this until the VIP card breaks. Have you, your friends need a bath. That, that actually, scratch that from the record. Bathe. <laughs> What I'm calling us to and the nature of this card, which by the way, I pray that you take this and use this, put it as a, a screenshot, a screensaver on your phone, put it in your Bible as a bookmark, put it on your refrigerator, put it on your dashboard. The vision for these cards is not sprinkle prayers. It's every day consistent bathing in prayer. Why? Because I can guarantee you someone was praying for you. Having conversations with 
moms and grandmas this week are like, man, it's been six years, it's been 10 years, it's been 15 years, it's been 25 years. Some of us are stubborn and it takes a little while for the prayers to kick in. I'm not asking, have you sprinkled your friends in prayer? I'm asking, have you bathed your friends in prayer? Everyday prayer. We've got our open house coming up next weekend. It is the perfect weekend to invite that friend, that neighbor, that coworker that you care about. You're like, man, I think they would like my church. They're kind of crazy, but I think they'd enjoy it and we hang out after and they get some food. Like, don't just invite them. Bathe those invites in prayer. Why? Because it'll change your heart and it just might change theirs. People's souls matter to Jesus. Lost souls matter to Jesus. So they need to matter to us. This theme is echoed and reverberated throughout the totality of scripture. Second Peter says it like this. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, this same heart of God is echoed in Ezekiel. God says to Ezekiel, surely as the Lord, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. Oh, Pastor John, are you just saying that God's up there just waiting to put down the hammer? He's like the angry police officer in the sky, just waiting to book me. No, he's not. Look at what it says. As surely as the Lord lives, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Well, who's he calling wicked? Humanity, have you seen us lately? I take no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, but rather turn from your ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. The first step into walking in this primary purpose is getting Jesus's heart for people. But the next step moving from that place is imperative. Once we get Jesus's heart for people, we must share Jesus's good news with people. Turn to your neighbor and say, share it, share it. You get his heart and you share his good news. Verse 36, Jesus moved with compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he turns to his disciples and he starts talking to them about harvest. Harvest is plentiful, laborers are few. Therefore, send the Lord of the harvest. At first glance, you're like, okay, that's cool. And then you actually think about it, you're like, did Jesus have ADD? Like, why, why in three verses are there two analogies? Like, couldn't he have just roll with the first analogy? Like, hey, the harvest is plentiful, the, you know, the, the sheep without a shepherd, and I am the good shepherd, and you are my under-shepherds, disciples. Now go out and be, right? Like, what's up with two analogies in three verses? I don't know if you thought about that, but it kind of messed with me. I'm like, why, why is this? Jesus is so absolutely amazing, and he does everything on purpose. Here's the point. Jesus, the good shepherd is the hero of the story. But the, and and it's, so it's tempting, and I've experienced this in some circles of Christendom where we lean on the very right sovereignty of God, but we use that as a way to abdicate our spiritual responsibilities for the rest of humanity. So it would sound like, well, the good shepherd is the one who actually is gonna rescue people. I mean, I, 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 I can't do that. I'm not the good shepherd. Good shepherd, do your thing. And Jesus is like, you're right. I'm the good shepherd. And the way the good shepherd shepherds the lost sheep is by commissioning harvesters into the harvest field. He's like, here's my analogy, this is what I do. Here's your analogy, this is what you do. The way good shepherd does his shepherding is by sending harvesters into the harvest field. You're like, who are the harvesters? If you follow Jesus, raise your hand. Now you know, those are the harvesters. It's us. Well, I'm not, I'm not an evangelist, Pastor John. I'm not calling you to be an evangelist. I'm calling you to be evangelistic. 
It's the I see, the ick, evangelistic. It's our call, and Jesus makes clear the means through which he shepherds his sheep is by harvesters going out into the harvest. We've been commissioned to share good news. Years ago, Romanian pastor Joseph Son ran away from his communist country to study theology in England. He had been radically encountered by the message in the way of Jesus, surrendered his life, and felt a call to preach the gospel and minister, but he wanted to get trained. In 1972, when he was about ready to go back to his home, he discussed his plans with his fellow students. They quickly pointed out all the ways that this plan could not work. What if you get arrested at the border? What if you never make it back? You're going into a country that's closed to the gospel. One student even asked him, Joseph, what chances do you have of successfully implementing your plans? Joseph recounts the interaction. He said, I smiled and thought to myself, this is such typical Western thinking. He later wrote this, chances of success. I never thought in those terms. My thinking was in terms of obedience. I knew that the king said go, and my only response was to say yes, sir, and go. To go and share the good news, it's, it's foundational to our very design. It's foundational to our primary purpose. And we ask lots of questions in our culture. And in the general culture, we might ask things like, what, what are my talents? What are my skills? What are the unique things I've been given to build a platform and to build a brand and to build notoriety and to gain status and to gain wealth? If you're spiritual and you're in church, you might say, what's my calling? What's my gifting? What's my apest, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher? How am I uniquely wired? And all of those are fine and none of those are bad, what I'm saying is that we have a universal, fundamental, primary purpose for each and every one of us to be his witnesses, and you will always feel like something is missing until you embrace this primary purpose. You're like, Pastor John, amen, you're up there sweating and spitting. I can't tell what's water and what's coming out of your mouth. That's great. You're a preacher, and so the way you love people is by sharing good news, gospel, Jesus' words, but, but I, the way I love people is, is I, just, I just like, I just love on them. And, and I don't like, I don't want to offend anybody. And so I don't talk to them about spiritual matters. And I'm not saying you're coming from an ingenuine place, but I want you to examine that for a moment. Because by the way, that is where our culture is at, especially as you move into younger generations. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to step anybody's toes. I just want to love people. Okay, I'm with you. If you, A, you don't actually believe what Jesus said, which is that there is a real path and a real way, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many of those who find it, but narrow is the way that leads to righteousness, and few who are finding it, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that every single human being is separated from God because of our sin and rebellion, and we need forgiveness that only Jesus can offer to be made right with God. Either you don't believe that, which you just have to own and be like, I actually don't believe that. Okay, own that, or you don't do believe that. And in your effort to say, well, I just love people, so I don't want to offend them, you actually don't love people. You actually love yourself. And you don't want to look like a jerk and your image be tarnished, so you don't tell them, not because you don't believe it's true, just because you don't care enough about them to be uncomfortable. Some of the greatest atheists who are intellectually honest are like, listen, if you believe this stuff, I don't believe it, but if you believe it, you don't tell anyone, how much do you have to hate them? It's this kind of gut check moment. If what Jesus says is true, then there is 
overwhelmingly bad news that culture and society and people that you love must know about. And there's amazing news that they don't have to end up in that spot and things can be so much better and they don't have to be like they were and there's purpose and destiny and hope. There's incredible and game-changing bad news and good news and they both matter. And if we're not careful, what we end up doing is like spiritual malpractice. We give people Tylenol when their issue is cancer. Well, I just want to love them. I just don't want to. Tylenol's fine, but please tell me you care enough about somebody to actually address the real spiritual malady at the root of it all. Otherwise, you're just sending them to death in peace. Paul was a wild man for the gospel. We talked about him in the book of Acts. He was this former religious terrorist that Jesus got a hold of and changed forever. Look at how he said it in 1 Corinthians 9. Oh, I think I got it there. Paul says, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became as one not having the law, although I am not free from, from God's law because I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I might by all means win some. Paul was the ultimate. He's like, listen, God's love compels me and I'm willing to do whatever it takes. God's got the work to do in someone's heart. I've got the commission and the mission to share. I remember I was at the University of Florida and, and they would have these, these preachers come in preaching all sorts of foolishness up there in game. They would get in this open square. I mean, they were preaching hate speech. It was only the bad news with none of the good news. And I would get so frustrated because that was not the Jesus that I had come to know. And he had changed my life and I was partying and doing drugs and selling all sorts of foolishness and Jesus rescued me. And I would sit there and I'd be so frustrated. I'm like, man, someone shut these guys up. And finally God was like, well, what are you going to do about it? I don't know what you're going to do about it, you know? And I just felt that. I'm like, what? I can't be so frustrated and then not do anything about it and feel like I've got some, some like, you know, high, moral high ground because I'm mad. It's like, what are you going to do? So I realized that there were all these people gathered around this free speech area at the University of Florida, and they're all interested enough in spiritual matters to be there, whether they're heckling the preacher. Kayla's laughing because she remembers this. They're at Turlington. Whether they're heckling the preacher or whatever, they're there. So I'm like, I'm just, I just went in like a spiritual sniper, and I just roll into these little groups. I'm like, man, what's this guy talking about? And I would just start engaging people and talking about God, faith, and spirituality. Some people, they, you know, they, they were just like, man, I just want to like, I just want to make fun of this guy. It's like a kind of a mockery thing. Some people were like, man, I want to see if what he's saying is true. It seems so mean. Other, there was all sorts of conversations, but, but inevitably some people were actually open and God starts working at hearts. And, and I find myself in these conversations where all of, all of a sudden God is working and God's moving. I was like, man, this is incredible. It was like, it was like a drug. I'm like, this is amazing. I got to get my next fix. Let me go talk to some people about Jesus. So I start, I'm like a madman in college. I start talking to anybody that would listen. I'll talk to roommates. I'll talk to doormates. I'll talk to other students. I'll talk to faculty. I'll talk to professors. I'm like, man, let me just see if God's going to move. And I got laughed at and I got made fun of and I got ridiculed and not everybody was open. But anytime someone was and you start watching God move, and I knew I was a mess before Jesus. I still am a mess now. Not as much, hopefully. Mm -hmm. Every time 
if it was just one person that had been trapped in anxiety and they experienced freedom and peace in Jesus, if it was just one person that had been told over and over that their life did not matter and all of a sudden they realized there's a God in heaven who created them with divine destiny and purpose, if it was just one person that they felt unloved and unlovable and unlovely and all of a sudden they realized there was a God who knew them from their mother's womb and it changed. If there was just one person that was open, I'm like, man, I could take the ridicule of a thousand of just one and I'm like, wait, that's a Bible verse. It's almost like we're made for it. And each time I stepped out there, heart beating, nervous as all get out, sweating before I even made it up to the person, I probably looked crazy. But each time I stepped out, I, I, I cannot describe the sense of God's nearness and his pleasure and his presence. And as I was preparing for this morning, I had a strong sense for someone or someones that if you have been in a spot where you've been wondering where God's at, you're like, God, where are you? You promised you would be near. You promised you would be close. You promised your prayer. You made all these promises. God, where are you? I'm supposed to remind you. Maybe it's for somebody online. I'm supposed to remind you that God is where he's always been, seeking and saving the lost. And he's inviting you to join him. Will you join him? Will you say Yes to your divine purpose. Our primary purpose is to love God and to be his witnesses. And when we do, we come alive like never before. I'm gonna close with this story and then we'll jump into the second half of our worship set. I came across a story this week of a man named Paul Tournier. He's a Swiss physician and author. He's regarded as the most influential Christian physician of the 20th century. Well known for his spiritual and psychosocial approach towards treatment, Paul Tournier pioneered the emphasis on the holistic treatment of patients by not only treating their physical troubles, but listening to their associated emotional and spiritual aspects as well. For those of us who like integrated medicine and holistic care, and we're thankful for therapy that deals with the mind and body, you have Paul Tournier to thank for a lot of that. He was the OG doing it before it was cool, like the hipster of medicine. But before he was any of those things, he was a struggling author. Paul Tournier loved Jesus. Jesus had transformed his life, and so he sought to use where he had been placed in the area of medicine to be a source of hope, comfort, and sharing of the good news to those that were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He had a book that he wrote, and it was all about secrets, and the general premise of this book, it was his first major publication, but before it was major, it was about to not happen, and, and the book's premise was basically there are secrets that are good to keep, namely when you do good deeds, and like Jesus said, when you do your good deeds, don't do them before men to get their pleasure, do them in secret. He said there are good secrets, but then there are also deadly secrets, things like sin, things like shame, that the more we hide them, the more they destroy us, and but he wasn't getting much traction with this book idea. And he said, I finally went to a, a mentor who was a professor that had always been uh, very helpful in giving honest, candid feedback and review of his work, always supportive of his career. But his mentor, this mentor, was an atheist. He said, well, I, I still want to give it a shot. He'll at least tell me. And he went to the mentor and he said, hey, listen, I'm working on this book idea. I'm about to scrap it. I feel really passionate about it, but no one seems to think it would be helpful to anybody. Can I just read you a chapter? And the mentor said, yeah, sure, you can read me a chapter. So he read him a chapter, and the mentor said, read me one more. And he read him another chapter, and the mentor said, read me one more chapter. 
And he got to the end of the third, fourth chapter and the mentor said, Paul, can we pray now? Paul said he was surprised because his mentor was an atheist. And so he said, I mean, you you know, I'm willing to pray, but like, I thought you were an atheist. He said, I was. He said, well, when did you start to believe? His mentor said, I started to believe right now. For the last several days, I have not been able to shake a Bible verse in Isaiah. In Isaiah 48, it says, there's no peace for the wicked. Paul Turney went on to describe how his mentor began to open up him and bear his soul. And he said, listen, your book about secrets needs to go out to the world. And it did end up going out to the world. And it kick-started Paul Turney's entire authorship and career and all of these things. He said, your, your work needs to go out to the world because there's a lot of people like me that are dying in the midst of their hidden secrets of sin and shame. And we look all right on the outside, but we're riddled with troubles on the inside. And as I thought about our time together and I thought about this moment, I thought about Isaiah 48. There, there is no, the wicked have no peace. Sin is pleasurable for a season. It's fun because people do it. Sin is basically anything that goes against God's path and design that he's created for us to flourish. One of the things that we do not talk about or consider with sin is that when we are engaging in sin, it robs us of our peace. It is the collateral damage factor. If you're here in the room, I'd love for you to indulge me and just close your eyes for a moment and think back. For those of you that know Jesus to the time before you met Jesus. Because in a lot of our stories, we remember a time where we were lacking in peace, riddled with anxiety, stuck in shame, trapped in pride. We would try our absolute hardest and everything felt like it blew up in our face and we were desperate. And then Jesus, the Prince of Peace, stepped in. And he brought transformation. And what I'm asking for this morning and what I'm praying that God by his spirit is gonna do even as we close out in these last few worship songs is I'm praying that God would give us his heart of compassion for people. Not because we're better, but because he's good. For our neighbors, for our coworkers, for our relatives, for our friends. Like John, I... They seem fine. You probably did too on the outside, but you weren't. I wasn't. Maybe you're here and you're in the room or you're watching online or you're over in Guyana right now and you're like, man, that, that, I'm in that boat. Like you, on the outside, people probably think I'm doing great. I am, I am in turmoil internally. I am stuck and trapped in my mind. You talk about no peace. I have no peace. Here's the great news this morning. Before you leave today, you can respond and invite the Prince of Peace onto the throne of your heart to make him leader, Lord, Savior, forgiver, rescuer, and deliverer. And he promises a peace that goes beyond all understanding maybe something started stirring in your heart and if I were to ask you when did you start to believe you said man I started to believe right now